0: anyone of the podcast it is sweeping America the air tour sports podcast it is Monday April 19th 2021 people I hope everybody is having a great day I hope everybody had a great weekend I hope spring has sprung wherever you are that you got to be outside do some fun stuff and we're gonna have a fun episode of the Aaron Torres podcast for those of you who are new to the show obviously look we are a, a seasonal show. Obviously, during college football season, we'll talk a ton of college football. During college basketball season, we'll talk a, a bunch of college basketball. But now is kind of the fun time on the calendar where we get to be a little bit more hodgepodge. Yes, we're going to hit on relevant college hoops topics when they hit. For example, the number one high school player in America, Chet Holmgren, is committing on Monday. We will obviously talk about that on the next episode. But, you know, we'll talk college hoops when it matters. We'll talk college football when something relevant happens. I should mention, by the way, I know there was a bunch of spring games in college football this weekend, but with so many injuries, so many guys sitting out, I don't know that we have to break down spring games here. But I bring it up because it's kind of a hodgepodge time of year where we hit on a lot of different things. And so this is the rundown of today's show, which will definitely be hodgepodge. We will open kind of with a put a bow on the college basketball season and specifically the college basketball coaching carousel. With Tommy Lloyd going to Arizona, the carousel is officially done, and it's kind of crazy because for all the big jobs that open Arizona, Indiana, North Carolina, there was really only one great hire that I think we all universally agree is can't miss, that's Texas and Chris Beard. So we'll break down the coaching hires, we'll grade the coaching hires. You guys chime in, tell me what I got right, what I got wrong, what you like, what you don't. Uh, From there, we will talk about the absurd story that came out from Woj on Saturday, where apparently Indiana offered Brad Stevens an absurd amount of money. Not going to criticize Indiana. I actually love the move, even though they didn't get uh, Brad Stevens. We'll take a quick break, come back, and as promised, kind of get into some NFL draft stuff. It is the next big topic on the calendar. And again, because we talk so much college football on this show it seems appropriate to go ahead and break down some of the big storylines. So I'll just kind of give you a couple storylines that I have noticed going into the draft. We all know Trevor Lawrence is going number one. We all know Zach Wilson is going number two. But a couple other things have caught my eye. And then we will wrap. For longtime listeners, shout-out of the day. If you remember, at the end of every episode... I used to do shout out of the day, which was kind of a quirky, fun, different story. And I want to do one on Pete Rose because Pete Rose uh, was in the news for just an absurd reason and not just because he celebrated his 80th birthday. So we will get to that. But I do want to start with where I promised I would start. And that is with the college basketball coaching Carousel. Because as I mentioned off the top, um with Tommy Lloyd going to Arizona, it feels like the coaching carousel is officially done. Now could something crazy happen? Could somebody get hit with sanctions, you know, will wait somebody like that get fired sure? Could somebody potentially leave for the NBA, which would create a vacancy? Sure. But the bottom line is, like, for the most part, the big jobs are all filled. Again, Arizona, Indiana, North Carolina are among the big ones that opened. But what was crazy to me was that of all the big jobs that open, I think the only one that you can definitively say was like, oh, my God, that school crushed it was the University of Texas in hiring Chris Beard. And so what I want to do, everybody that follows college basketball, college football, whatever, we always kind of do a grading the coaching hires, either a segment on a podcast or a radio station, uh, an article on the web. And so what I want to do over the next few minutes is grade the coaching hires in college basketball Over the course of the last four or five weeks, I'll give them a grade. You guys can tally him at home if you want. Uh, And then we'll discuss uh, throughout the course of not only next season, but the coming years to see who did good, who didn't, who missed on their picks. Because again, outside of Chris Beard, It's kind of crazy to think about how many schools had openings and really how many of even the jobs that were filled have question marks, whether it is Hubert Davis at North Carolina, whether it is Tommy Lloyd at Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. But let's start with the highest grade that I will give out today. Uh, And as I mentioned, you're probably not going to be surprised to hear the highest grade that I'm giving out is to Chris Beard at the University of Texas. I give Chris Beard an A+. It's about as big of a home run as you could possibly get in the college basketball space. And what's crazy about it is, first of all, Chris Beard would be a home run A-plus to any school in the country if North Carolina had hired him, if Indiana had hired him, obviously if down the road Kentucky were to hire him, uh, given what he has done so far, but it's about as big of a home run as you can possibly get. This is a guy that took a Texas Tech program that basically had no history before he got there, and every single piece of history that essentially that they have is thanks to Chris Beard. First Elite Eight, in school history under Chris Beard in year two. First final four in school history under Chris Beard in year three. First national championship game appearance under Chris Beard. Uh, This year they actually won at Texas, which was the first time they beat a top 10 team on the road under Chris Beard. First time they beat the number one team in the country against Louisville at Madison Square Garden a few years ago, thanks to Chris Beard. And so for that guy to pick up and not only move across state, but across conference, it's just a huge win for Texas. And, like, look, you know, is he going to definitively win multiple national championships at Texas? Like, I don't know. But what I do think is indisputable is that I just don't see this hire missing. This guy's the complete package. He knows X's and O's. He knows game planning. He knows preparing. He knows recruiting. Speaking of which, to his credit, he has already hit the ground running with recruiting as he has signed three different marquee transfers. Timmy Allen, who was all Pac-12 first team at Utah. Uh, Devin Askew, who of course was at Kentucky last year, Christian Bishop, a starter on Creighton Sweet 16 team, they have all already committed to Texas, he is not going to miss a beat, and I should mention by the way, here's the crazy part, talk about coming to a job at the perfect time, the 2022 high school class in Texas is absolutely loaded, and I think when you talk to people across college basketball, I think Chris Beard was building something really special at Texas Tech. But he believed that there was a tier of players that he just was never going to get at Texas Tech that he believes he can get at Texas. So you talk about the perfect time to take a head coaching job. It is when not only is the transfer market booming and you are a transfer guy, but also on top of that, the elite high school players, so many of them are in the state of Texas. So look, it's an A+. There's no doubt about it. I don't see how it can be anything other than an A+. Second best hire, I will give an A- to Oklahoma hiring Porter Mosher. So how about that? Red River rivalry. I know we can't call it the Red River shootout anymore. Whatever. Red River rivalry, Oklahoma, I would say A- minus to A for hiring Porter Mosher from Loyola. The reason it's an A, we know why. The dude just made a Final Four three years ago. The dude made a Sweet 16 this year. And as we saw, his X's and O's are just completely through the roof. I mean, he just completely outcoached, outworked Illinois in that second round game, makes it to the Sweet 16. And what I like about him is that he has a definitive system. And I give credit to Oklahoma for going after him. Don't know if I ever officially talked about it on this show, but I know on radio, we talked about it extensively where I really felt like he wanted to get out after this season. Everybody said, oh, you know, you can build it into the next Gonzaga of the Midwest. And it's like, you know how hard it is to build a program like Gonzaga, and the Gonzaga thing—it took 20 plus years to get to where they are right now. And so, when you looked at Porter Moser's situation, he had been to back-to-back, uh, you know, two NCAA tournaments in the last four years, and in both of them, he made the second weekend or beyond. And so, now the standard at Loyola of Chicago was going to be. Not only are you expected to get to the NCAA tournament, but you have to win once you get there. That was the standard that he set. I thought he would consider leaving, and so I give a lot of credit to Oklahoma for going out and getting him. And I'll say from his perspective, I think Oklahoma's a pretty great job too. I would actually argue Oklahoma's one of the better jobs in college basketball because on the plus side, you have all the resources in the world to succeed, and on the plus side as well, you don't have the expectations of a, Kansas, of uh, even Texas. I mean, if, if you go to the NCAA tournament every year at Oklahoma, they'll build you a freaking statue, right? Lon Kruger was at Oklahoma forever. Um, and basically, he just made the NCAA tournament every year, had one great run with Buddy Heald, and the guy's an icon there. So I think it's a great job. I think it's a great fit. I think he is a great coach. The only reason I couldn't put him higher than an A- to an A, it's pretty simple. It's because of the fact that he's never coached at this level before. He has never coached in a place where, um, you know, there are going to be probably what? At least two, three, four schools that have better resources, better facilities, better this, better that than Oklahoma. Obviously, Kansas is the top dog, but Baylor's coming off a national championship run. Texas with Chris Beard is now a monster, and so because of it, I can't put him any higher. He's never coached at this level. He's never recruited at this level. I don't think he's ever coached in a league with as many great coaches as the Big 12, but I like the hire. I like Porter Mosier there. I think he'll be really good. I will give it an A. Okay, I gave it an A-, minus, but I'll give it an A. Next one up, A-, minus. a guy that's kind of off the radar, but I want to give him a little bit of credit, Craig smith is at Utah okay so Craig Smith came from Utah State in the Mountain West to Utah and I think this is like the sneaky great hire of the offseason and it's crazy to think I think just based on what they've done at the college level you could argue that Utah made a better pure hire than North Carolina than Arizona than schools like that reason why is simple Craig Smith in three years at Utah State in the Mountain West made three NCAA tournaments came in took somebody else's players year 1 wins the Mountain West tournament gets a 9 seed goes to the NCAA tournament last year in 2020 they would have they they did make the NCAA tournament they're one of the few teams that can say it they won the Mountain West tournament championship before the NCAA tournament was canceled and then this year they get an 11 seed And what stands out to me about Craig Smith is a couple of things. One, he is a super dynamic, fun personality. He's a young guy. He's kind of loose. He's fun. But his teams execute and play at an insane level. There was never a time in the three years that he was at Utah State that he had the most talented roster in the conference. And I would argue there were times he maybe didn't even have the second most talented, third most talented, fourth most talented roster, and he made it to the NCAA tournament all three years. I've told this story but I vividly remember talking to the previous, you know, people around Utah State before he got there, and they were saying that coming to the Mountain West, they had come from the Big West, or I think it was the WAC, to the Mountain West, and they said that the, they thought the step up was too big for the school, and that the school wasn't ready, and they thought they should have stayed in the smaller conference. That staff is out, this staff is in, Craig Smith goes to three straight NCAA tournaments, and so I give him an A. Now look, he's obviously never coached at the highest levels of college basketball, he's obviously never recruited on the level that he is going to have to to have success at Utah, but the one thing he has going for him, the Pac-12 is really good, but it ain't the Big 12 in terms of the depth of teams in the conference, obviously schools like Cal are struggling, Stanford struggling, Washington State, Oregon State had a great run in this year's NCAA tournament, but are they really built for long term success? And so I think he can come in and have immediate success. Now, the ceiling of the program might not be as high as certainly UCLA or Oregon or Arizona, but I think he'll be really good. I think he'll have Utah consistently in NCAA tournament contention, which is something they have not been in a long time. Next one, I think this one might surprise you. Shaka Smart, B-plus at Marquette. And I know I've just been crushing Shaka Smart here the last two, three years at Texas, and I understand where you would question why I would have him ranked so high. And I would also say, by the way, before I even get to the ranking, how crazy is it? Shaka Smart, if they beat Abilene Christian, say they make the Sweet 16, because they beat Abilene Christian, they got to play UCLA, maybe they wouldn't have beaten UCLA. But he beats Abilene Christian, there's a chance he's still at Texas, but now he's at Marquette. With that said, the Texas thing, it clearly didn't work. I think part of it was he definitely underachieved. I do think he took the wrong approach. He recruited the wrong kinds of players. He felt like I got to recruit the one-and-done elite kind of player, and if I don't, then this is what I'm here at Texas for. Whatever, it didn't click. I do think him going to Marquette is a better fit for him. He's back in Wisconsin where he's from. He's back in Wisconsin in the Northeast. He's in the Big East, which is kind of more of a developmental league anyway. You think about the great programs in the Big East, Villanova, UConn getting there with Dan Hurley, uh, Creighton. Those are programs that don't don't recruit one-and-dones. Those aren't programs that want to flip over their rosters every year. They want to develop players. They want to get better as time goes on. I think that's the kind of coach that Shaka Smart is and wants to be, and I don't think it's who he was at Texas, and so I think this is a more natural fit for him. I think he's going to be good. I really, really do, and I think that this is, was the right move for him at the right time. Sometimes in life, it's better for both sides just to move on. You look at, say, Mike Anderson at Arkansas, right? It was just time for him to move on. He's doing well at St. John's. I think it can be a similar deal with Shaka Smart. Also in the B-plus territory, Tommy Lloyd, Arizona. Spent a bunch of time on this last time, won't spend too much time, but this is just a guy we know what he's about was with the best program arguably in college basketball over the last few years. Great at developing talent, great eye for talent. And look, once you decide to fire Sean Miller, this was about as good as you can do. I talked about him a ton on the last episode. You can go back and listen. I do wonder if he'll be able to recruit the elite high school players that are expected at Arizona. But I'll also say Arizona kind of sells itself. We will wait and see, but I do like the hire. Another B plus. How about my boy, Mike Woodson? Indiana. And yes, I know. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. If this, if this coaching ranking had been done immediately following the hiring, it probably would have been like a C minus. I was not a fan. I've said it many times. But Mike effing Woodson, this guy's been killing it since he got this job, and I have to grade based on what we know right now. And what we know right now is that he has done all the right things with his coaching staff. He retained Kenya Hunter, Archie Miller's lead assistant, who had great relationships with the players. It has helped Mike Woodson retain a bunch of the players that were in the transfer portal that were considering leaving that decided to come back. Trace Jackson Davis returns. He also hired Dane Fife, a very prominent Indiana player in the uh, Tommy Lloyd, the Bob Knight era. So this guy's done everything right so far. He's in the portal, he's aggressive, he's re recruited his players, he got Xavier Johnson from Pitt to, to 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 come to Indiana. It's the guy's done everything right. And the one thing I will say about him, in addition to everything that I just laid out, he has been a head coach before, right? Like, this is why I give him a little bit of a higher grade than Hubert Davis. Hubert Davis has never been a head coach, which we'll get into in a minute. Mike Mike Woodson was like a good NBA head coach. I was worried more about how he was going to adjust to college basketball, but to his credit, he has put a staff around him that I think gets college basketball and is going to help him with the transition, so I give him a B-plus as well. A lot of B-pluses, because I got a fourth one, Wes Miller from Cincinnati. Cincinnati fires John Brannon. The whole team's in the portal. I like to hire Wes Miller. Wes Miller, for people who don't know, he had been a head coach at UNC Greensboro, took them to the NCAA tournament this year, and was a candidate for the North Carolina job. So from one perspective, I think if you're Cincinnati, look, you just got a guy that almost got the North Carolina job. That ain't bad. But on the flip side, he was a guy that I think it was time for him to leave that level. One, it's just going to be harder to coach at the low major level to keep your players. Everybody's recruiting transfers now. Everybody's recruiting guys off other people's roster. So he gets to move up a level. He can prove that he can do it at a higher level so that maybe when the next time the North Carolina job opens... Hopefully, if you're a Carolina fan, 10 years down the road, but, but if Hubert Davis doesn't work out, he's in better position to get it, but he's made multiple NCAA tournaments, he builds programs, he has already re-recruited many of the players that were in the portal for Cincinnati, and so I like to hire B+, plus multiple NCAA tournaments, Wes Miller. In the B category, I will give Hubert Davis a B, and we all know why. I get why North Carolina hired him, I have no problem with the hire from North Carolina's perspective, but there are real questions. In terms of why they hired him, it's obvious. He's a Carolina guy. He's been with Roy Williams forever, and that makes sense. I don't disparage them for doing it, and to a degree, I understand. They kept the program intact. They kept the players that were thinking about leaving from doing so. Caleb Love is going to come back. Uh, obviously, Armando Baycott, their best big guy, has considered, um, you know, is, is considering the NBA, but if it doesn't work out, he will come back to college. And so I get it. Hubert Davis has done good so far. Also went and got a player out of the portal, Brady Manick from Oklahoma over the course of the weekend, who I think is going to be a really good player. On the flip side, unlike Mike Woodson, he has never coached a game of basketball as a head coach at any level at any point in his career. So I don't know how much higher of a grade I can possibly give Hubert Davis cuz he's never coached at any level at let alone at the North Carolina level. I also, you know, North Carolina I think they could have gotten one of those elite guys. We'll talk about Brad Stevens in a minute because there was a crazy story, but I'm willing to give Hubert Davis a chance, but we got to call a spade a spade. He's never coached anywhere at any level, and you know, it's the old saying, like, would he have been a candidate at any other job, certainly at the level of North Carolina? The answer is probably no. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. We will wait and see, but I give him a B. Now to the B minuses. Mark Adams, the head coach at Texas Tech. He is the new head coach at Texas Tech. For people who do not know, he was Chris Beard's lead assistant. He has been elevated, and his one job was to retain the entire team from last year. Basically, right? Like, like in, in many ways, like North, it's kind of like the North Carolina thing. Like, I get why North Carolina kept Hubert Davis as its next head coach, and I get why Texas Tech had kept, you know, made the decision that they made. Essentially, what they were saying was, we are coming off the greatest run in the history of Texas Tech basketball, and we are going to do anything we can to hold it together with duct tape and super glue. In a way, it's like when you're dating some <laughs> I was thinking about this, but it's kind of like the analogy, like you're dating somebody that's completely out of your league, you know, she's probably going to leave you, and all of a sudden you start buying her expensive purses and flowers and taking her out to expensive dinners, you're just trying to hold on for dear life, you know, you're never going to get anybody better than her. Well, that's kind of what Texas Tech was doing. I don't blame them for doing it. Just one problem. They hired this guy to retain the entire team, and he couldn't do it. Mack McClung in the transfer portal. Uh, Kyler Edwards transferred to Houston. Micah Peavy transferred to TCU. Basically, all the guys that you wanted him to retain are gone, and the guys that have decided to stay, you got one kid named Kevin McCuller, really good player, but uh, let's just call a spade a spade. He's there because his parents both went to Texas Tech. His dad played football at Texas Tech. He's a Texas Tech, what do they call it, a legacy. Like, he's not going to leave Texas Tech. And everybody else, we're kind of role players that are like, hey, all the good guys are gone. I get to play now. So I'm not criticizing Texas Tech, but they kept him in large part to retain the roster from last year, and all the good players left. So that one's a B-minus at Texas Tech. Also in the B-minus category, uh, Tony Stubblefield, who is the new head coach at DePaul, not going to knock it. He's just, you know, but he's 51 years old. He's never been a head coach before. He is a great elite recruiter. And I do think DePaul kind of scrambled a little bit when Kenny Payne, when that thing didn't work out. So, hey, we will wait and see. Very well respected in, in basketball circles, but he's just never been a head coach before. Coming to a new school, a new conference, so we will see how Tony Stubblefield works out. That is a B minus. C category. category. T.J. Hotzelberger, the new Iowa State head coach. And for people who don't know, he was previously the head coach at UNLV, went 29-30 and at UNLV, but he was kind of the top assistant kind of in the glory days of the Fred Hoiberg era, and so it's clear that the Boosters wanted to relive the Fred Hoiberg era, so they went out and got the number one guy. Just one problem, wasn't really that good as a head coach. Now, to his credit, did make two NCAA tournaments at his stop before UNLV at South Dakota State, But at South Dakota State, he had Mike Dom, who was by far the best player in that conference and one of the best mid majors players in college basketball, gets to UNLV, goes 29-30. I don't know that it's a great hire, but what are you going to do? And by the way, credit to Kevin Kruger, the new head coach at UNLV, who has not only retained most of the players... But on top of that, they brought in, I think, five high major transfers at this point. So in many ways, maybe it worked out better for UNLV, but that feels like a C-hire to me right now. Speaking of C-hires, Micah Shrewsbury, new head coach at Penn State, never been a head coach before. Tough job. I I don't know what to say. I mean, you know, it remains to be seen. I have him as a C. By the way, I forgot to mention Earl Grant, the new Boston College head coach. I'd probably put him in the B minus category I mean he made an NCA tournament at Charleston about three four years ago but it just feels weird he's not from the Northeast he's never coached in the ACC level I mean he did make an NCA tournament but it's hard to get excited about that one especially there were so many good people with Northeast ties John Becker at Vermont um, you know uh, the guy Mark Schmidt at, at Saint Bonaventure. And so because of it, I'll give Earl Grant a B minus. I kind of skipped over him, went straight to the Cs, but T.J. Otterberger, a C, Michael Shrewsbury, a C. And then finally, just gonna throw it out there. Ben Johnson, new head coach at Minnesota. I gotta give it a D plus. I'll be honest, I knew nothing about this guy when they hired him. He's a Minnesota, I mean, he's from Minnesota, so I guess he sold him on that, but he was an assistant at Xavier. It's not even like he was coming from a good staff. And Minnesota's like kind of a good job. They got a lot of high school players in the state of Minnesota. You kind of felt like you could probably do a little bit better than Ben Johnson that nobody had ever really heard of. So he is a D. But like I said, I'm not going to go through all of them again. But grading the coaching hires, Chris Beard A+, Porter Mosier A, Craig Smith A-, Shaka Smart, Tommy Lloyd, Mike Woodson, and Wes Miller all B-pluses. Oh! Before we get to the NFL Draft, one more, uh, I guess you could call it a college basketball coaching carousel. No, we just graded all the coaching hires. Um, Did you see the report from Woj on Saturday? Did you see the report from Woj? Apparently, Indiana University, it took them three weeks to find a head coach and we're kind of wondering why what is going on in Indiana they're such a mess they're so dysfunctional whatever well now we know why it took Indiana so long to find its next head coach it is because they made the godfather offer of all godfather offers to Brad Stevens according to Woj Indiana put an offer on the table or was at least willing to offer Brad Stevens are you ready for this I'm going to pause for dramatic effect Indiana was ready to offer Brad Stevens a seven-year, $70 million contract. That is right. They were ready to make Brad Stevens, as best I can tell, not only the highest paid coach in college basketball, but maybe the highest paid coach in all of college sports, if not all of sports overall. To which I say, shout out Indiana. Listen, here's the thing, right? I know there's a lot of you that are probably sitting around, driving around, doing what you're doing. Saying, oh my God, Indiana. Who do they think they are? Who do they think they are? are they do they really think Brad Stevens is gonna come back to college? Like like what are they what are they doing? I actually see it as the exact opposite. I actually see it as Indiana finally drawing the line in the sand, finally doing what I have said that one, every college basketball program needs to do, these big time schools, which we'll get into in a minute. But two, what this is what this is what Indiana just did. They said exactly what I told you when this job opened. They said We believe that we are one of the 5 to 10 best college basketball jobs in the country. We believe that we have the resources and the fan support and we have everything needed to be what Kentucky has been the last 10 years, to be what Duke has been the last 10 years, to be what North Carolina has been the last 10 years, but we haven't gotten the coach right. And the only way to get this right, the only way to get Indiana basketball back to where it needs to be we got to go get the best coach we can, and we got to be willing to pay whatever it takes to get that man to accept this job. And so when I saw this headline, all I said was, shout out Indiana, because we've made fun of you, and we've mocked you, and there are people like me in my early to mid-30s, I don't even really remember Indiana being that good. But there are people in Indiana that are saying, we're tired of being the punchline, we're tired of being a joke, we're tired of being second-class citizens, forget on the national scene, but in the Big Ten. Michigan has lapped us. Illinois has lapped us. Michigan State's been kicking our butt for 15, 20 years. Let's go get us the coach that is going to solve this and make us Indiana again. And so I don't want to discredit Indiana, and I don't want to make fun of them. If anything, I think it's a pretty cool gesture on Indiana's part because they basically said, we're tired of getting our brains beat in. Let's do what we need to do to make this program relevant again. And it's like I said a minute ago, I frankly don't understand why all of these schools don't do this. This is exactly what I said when the North Carolina job opened up. I said, if you're North Carolina, you can keep it in-house and you do the Hubert Davis thing and you can be cute and you can do this and pay him two five and he'll he'll happily accept the job. But you're North Carolina, right? You're North Carolina. You are the blue blood of all blue bloods. If you are not the best job in college basketball, you're no worse than number two behind Kentucky. So go get a coach that is, is befitting of the best job in college basketball or second best job in college basketball. Go get Jay Wright and put... Se- and I-, I use the number, $75 million. I said put $75 million guaranteed on the table and make him say no. Put $75 million on the table for Mark Few and make him say no. I know Mark Few said no to a million other jobs. I know he loves living in Washington State. I know he loves fly fishing on the lake in the offseason. Well, guess what? There's lakes in Charlotte too. And you offer him $75 million. That might be the way to make them say yes, but that is the only way you are going to get an elite coach to leave an elite job. Didn't understand why North Carolina didn't do it. Frankly, didn't really understand why Indiana didn't do it, but to their credit, they apparently did. And as a matter of fact, I'll even take it a step further. I don't understand why all of these blue blood Cadillac jobs in football and basketball don't do the same. I've used the example a million times. I give so much credit to Texas A&M football. And I've told the story, but it's worth rehashing here. Texas A&M football, when they fired Kevin Sumlin, they said, we're tired of paying B-plus money or you know A-minus money, B-plus money for C-plus coaches. We're tired of it. We're tired of being whatever. Irre- Irrelevant's not the right word. Johnny Manziel, they were good. But we're tired- we, we-, we want to be a national championship contender. We saw Texas win a title 15 years ago. We see Bama. We've seen LSU. We've seen this. We've seen that. We want to be a player in the game. And Texas A&M is really the only team that I can think of in the last 10, 12, 15 years, at least since Nick Saban was hired at Alabama, that basically did exactly what I said and what any fan would do if they were running a coaching service. They said, let's rally the money. Let's put together whatever money we have to do, but we are going to get the best head coach we can, and we're not taking no for an answer. And if he says no, we're going to add another zero. And if he says no, we'll add a zero after that. And if he says no, we'll add an extra year onto that contract. And and Texas A&M got Jimbo Fisher. And look what's happened since then. Year one, he wins nine games. Year two, they win nine games. But if you look at the schedule, they lost to the best teams in the country. They lost to Clemson, Alabama, uh, LSU when they had Joe Burrow, and Georgia when Georgia was probably the third, fourth, fifth best team in the country. And then last year, in year three, Jimbo Fisher makes the Orange Bowl. And by year three, I don't want to say the contract is completely paid for itself, but it's starting to look like that $75 million might've been a bargain, and it sounds crazy, but fifth in the college football playoff race, second best team in the SEC, and here's the thing. Look at the 2021 and 2022 mock draft boards. I saw some mock draft for 2022 where Texas A&M has the most players on the 2022 mock draft. Which means that one of these guys that does the mock draft and NFL draft stuff full-time believes that Texas A&M may have the most talented roster, or at least talented veteran-laden roster, going into college football next year. Doesn't mean they're going to beat Bama, doesn't mean they're going to win a national championship, but what it does mean is they're getting their money's worth with Jimbo Fisher because he got him in the Orange Bowl in year three, fourth best, fifth best team in college football, maybe should have been in the playoff over Notre Dame, and now they're going to keep on rolling here into 2021, 2022, and beyond. And so I don't understand why all these schools don't. And oh, here's the other thing, by the way. I didn't even mention this part. Like I said, these guys pay for themselves. And what drives me crazy and what drives me bonkers and what I, I, I'm so tired of watching is you have all these schools that make the executive, well, you know, we, can, we could go after that guy and pay, pay, you know, above market value. But come on, we're not gonna pay a coach $7 million. And then what happens? You fire a guy three years later anyway. And I bring it up with Texas A&M. My buddy Gabe Bach, who covers Texas A&M, he brings it up all the time. He goes, the Jimbo Fisher contract looks absurd on paper when it happened, but, but, but let me ask you this. Would you rather be paying Jimbo Fisher $75 million guaranteed or would you rather be Texas that paid Tom Herman $25 million, needed to pay him another $20 million to go away, and now you got to pay a whole new coach with a whole new coaching staff with Steve Sarkisian? And so to me, I never have a problem and I will never criticize any of these schools making the decisions that we as fans would do if we were AD. And that is go find the best coach, pay him whatever it takes to get him to leave and come to our place. Now, as it turns out with Indiana, I hate to say it, but as critical as I was of the original Mike Woodson hire, I think he's been really good so far. And I think it might have worked out for Indiana because the one thing about Mike Woodson, he has put a good staff around him. Um, He has done a great job of re-recruiting the roster that was in the portal. He's picked up a nice transfer piece in Xavier Johnson, who was at Pitt. And I think this Mike Woodson thing might work out. But the one thing that I won't tolerate, I won't tolerate anybody on this podcast or anywhere else criticizing Indiana for putting an absurd amount of money in front of Brad Stevens. I think it was the right thing for them to do. They wanted to prove to the world, we are still an elite brand in college basketball, and we're going to go get the guy that takes us there. And oh, by the way, I think it's worth noting, it took Brad Stevens two press conferences to officially say he was not interested in the Indiana job. If you remember, was asked about it and kind of danced around, nah, you know, I'm good, I love Boston, I'm a Bostonite, da-da-da, this and that. And they had to ask him a second time because he didn't really deny interest in the job. And so maybe Indiana just found the one guy or one of the few guys that isn't motivated by money, really doesn't want to coach college basketball, but I will never criticize Indiana for going after the best available target that they could, trying to get him and trying to get him to turn around their program. But like I said, I'm excited to see how Mike Woodson turns out, even though I was initially critical of the hire. All right, got me fired up. 70 million on the table, guaranteed gets a man fired up. But what I want to do is take a quick break because as I said off the top of the show, this is a fun time of year where we can kind of bounce around. We can do different topics. We're not totally indebted to like, we have to talk college football like we do in September, October. We have to talk college basketball in February, March. What I want to do, take a quick break, come back, talk a little bit of the NFL draft because it is officially draft season. We're two weeks away just some storylines that I, you know things that I've been thinking about as it pertains to the NFL draft we'll wrap on shout out of the day which is coming back Pete Rose crazy story you guys are going to love this but I am going to take a quick break all right everybody I am back hope you enjoyed that uh 10 12 four seconds whatever it was without me But I do want to transition, I do want to transition to a little bit of NFL draft talk and it's like I said off the top of the show, is that this is kind of a fun time of year where between seasons I'm not beholden to it's March, I have to talk college basketball from beginning of the show to end every single episode, not in September, October I have to talk college football and so we're going to kind of bounce around from topic to topic to topic over the next few weeks and months and if there's a relevant college basketball topic, like I said, Chet Holmgren is committing on Monday so we'll definitely talk that probably to lead next show Uh, then we'll talk that but if there's a college football topic if there's something quirky something different we'll hit on that which I'm gonna do at the end of the show by the way with a crazy Pete Rose story that I want to get to but I do want to talk a little bit of NFL draft one because with March Madness done this is now officially the next big sporting event on the calendar but two because people for anyone who's new to this show we've picked up a lot of new listeners here over the last couple months in the fall we talk a lot of college football on this show I love college football, I covered college football for years, I host Fox Sports Radio's national college football recap show on Saturday nights at 11pm Eastern, kind of coming on after that big ABC game at 7.30 Eastern, so I know college football, and so with my college football kind of, we talk about it anyway, and my love of the draft, you guys love the draft, we all love the draft, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking draft, and probably we'll talk draft a little bit in each episode these next few weeks, because like I said, it is the next big topic coming up in, on the sporting calendar, and it's something I enjoy talking about. It's something you enjoy listening about. And what I want to do today is focus on the five, in my opinion, the five big questions surrounding the NFL draft. Right, like We know Trevor Lawrence is going number one. We know uh, the Kansas City Chiefs and Tampa Bay Bucks are drafting at the back end of the draft. Uh, But I want to hit on the five topics that I believe to be the biggest topics going into this draft, which are now about 10 days away. Cannot believe how fast this draft has gotten here. It feels like it was just yesterday. It was January 1st, college football playoff, whatever. But with that said, let's get to the five biggest questions surrounding this NFL draft. Topic number one, drum roll please. Okay, that wasn't very good. But anyway, topic number one. Why is Justin Fields falling in this draft? Now, maybe this isn't like the perfect day to talk about this because over the last couple weeks or excuse me, the last week or so, Justin Fields has now gone back up draft boards and is now the betting favorite in Vegas as the number three overall pick. But a couple of things. One, It was just, what, a week and a half ago that everyone thought that Mac Jones had surpassed Justin Fields, and on top of that, even if Justin Fields goes number three, he still in theory fell a little bit because he was a consensus number two guy going into this draft. Now, maybe Zach Wilson was just that good, and we'll get into that in a minute, but at the same time, like, why are there so many questions about Justin Fields? First of all, the Dan Orlovsky comments from a few weeks ago that he's the quote-unquote first one in the building, or first last one in the building, first one to leave. I'll just say this. I don't know Justin Fields, and I'll, I'll also say I respect the heck out of Dan Orlovsky. He's a UConn guy. I think he's one of the best ESPN analysts that they have on the NFL I just think he's wrong on this, and I don't blame him for the record. I don't blame him for putting it out there. Sometimes you hear stuff, you hear stuff from somebody you trust, and you put it out there. You don't think it's going to become a big national story like it sometimes does. I've been in that boat, but what I would say is with the Justin Fields, quote-unquote, he is the, the, the the last one in the building and the first one to leave. Don't blame Orlovsky for putting it out there if he truly believed it or he truly trusted the person that told him. But what I would also say is that what I tell you all the time, Sometimes we have a piece of information, but we have to compare it with every other piece of information that we have. And what I would tell you is, every other piece of information that we have does not reflect that Justin Fields does not love football. And we talked about a lot of this with Trevor Lawrence last episode. I'm not going to get into the Trevor Lawrence stuff again. You can go back and listen. But Justin Fields, if the guy didn't love football, let's just go back to July and August of last year. Because when the world was trying to cancel Big Ten football, you know who was at the front of the line fighting for it to be played? Justin Fields. And he was a guy that very easily could have just said, you know what? i gonna be a top five pick. I'm going to be the number two pick. I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to go to the sidelines, I'm going to sit this season out, I'm going to go train, I'll get ready for the draft next year. That's what he could have done. Instead, he fought harder than anybody. He started that petition.org thing to get the season back on its feet. And even when, by the way, the SEC, the ACC, the Big 12 were set to play and the Big Ten was canceled, he was still fighting. So the idea that he doesn't love football doesn't jive with me. But beyond that, even even if he does love football, I don't really understand how he can be anything other than I think he should be the second pick in the draft, which we'll get into in a minute. But no worse than third, and to me, that's where the the falling down the draft board stuff comes in. Because if San Francisco does go with another option at number three, then you do have a scenario where you start to look at the draft board. Atlanta's probably if they keep that pick are probably not going to draft a quarterback. Justin Fields might fall down to number nine, and Denver might fall out of the top ten, and it makes zero sense to me. And here's why: I understand. That statistic, first of all, I, I first of all, let's put aside the he doesn't like to work because it's complete nonsense. Ohio State's come out and said that's ridiculous. But even if you're going to look at his numbers and say, uh, well, he, he, he took a major step back this year. Well, did he really? First of all, his completion percentage was much higher than it was a year ago. And in only, what, seven games, he had 22 touchdowns, six interceptions. Last year, obviously, 41 touchdowns and three interceptions. But he played a bunch more games. On top of that, I will defend Justin Fields in saying that there are legitimate reasons as to why his numbers were, in theory, quote-unquote, not as good this year as last year. I don't think there was a single quarterback anywhere in college football that dealt with more nonsense off the field and with everything going on with COVID, etc., than Justin Fields, okay? Never forget, this was a guy, first of all, his season didn't even start until, what, the end of October, practicing with his guys all summer, getting ready, going, 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 testing, 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 testing. Season gets canceled. Spends five weeks just fighting to get a season. Finally gets a season. Three games get canceled in the middle of the season. And even the games that Justin Fields played, think about it. First of all, three games canceled, a couple of them at the last minute. They were ready to fly out to play Illinois. That game gets canceled. Um, But on top of that, think about everything else behind the context of it. Gotta dig a little deeper. One of his games that Justin Fields played, he actually played well in this game, he played behind an entire backup offensive line because his whole line tested positive for COVID and there was contact tracing. On top of that, Ryan Day was not in the stadium for one game uh, because of heat caught COVID and could not travel with the team. And so you talk about a guy who, first of all, some of his numbers weren't even down from last year. They were actually up, including completion percentage. You want to know why? Some of the numbers were down. No quarterback dealt with more crap than he did. No quarterback did. Oh, by the way, I love Trevor Lawrence. I think Trevor Lawrence should go number one. But you remember what happened right before the playoff game with Trevor Lawrence? His offensive coordinator got caught. Not not got caught. He he caught COVID and missed the game. Trevor Lawrence didn't look good without his offensive coordinator either. So to me, I'm just telling you straight up Justin Fields would be my definitive number two quarterback on the board. That's no disrespect to Mac Jones. That's no disrespect to Zach Wilson. But at the very least, I just don't understand the idea that he's going to fall past three. You cannot tell me that there are three definitive better quarterbacks than Justin Fields. And so that's question number one. Why is Justin Fields falling? What did he do? He doesn't deserve. It's not about deserve, but he he, he shouldn't be falling down draft boards. Question number two. Why is Mac Jones rising up draft boards? Now, this is one that I actually feel like I have a pretty good answer to. Sometimes there's just questions that don't make sense, like the Justin Fields thing. Sometimes there are perfectly logical explanations for things, and it's funny because my Saturday radio partner, Arnie Spanier, and I, we duked it out on this topic. But there's a couple very logical explanations as to why Mac Jones is rising up draft boards. First of all, you gotta remember... These guys that do the NFL draft, the guys that are decision makers for these NFL teams, the general managers, the team president, the head coach, you know what they're doing in September, October, November when Mac Jones was playing? Ah, They were taking care of their own team. And so I think it's so easy for us to forget, oh, how did this guy move up? The season ended in January. It's like, yeah, but these guys didn't start watching film on these guys until their season ended in late January, early February as well. And if you look at Mac Jones, if you didn't know anything about Mac Jones, and you turn on the tape, you say, oh my God, this guy's good. 41 touchdowns, four interceptions, a 77.8% completion percentage. And to me, that's why Mac Jones is moving up draft boards. It's easy to sit there and say, oh, anybody could do it at Alabama with all the guys that they have. Except here's the thing. Mac Jones had a 77.8% completion percentage which is the highest completion percentage in the history of FBS football for anybody who threw over 10 passes per game over the course of a season. Let me say that again. Mac Jones had the highest completion percentage in the history of FBS football. So why is he rising? Because his stats were incredible, because his play was incredible, and because he did something that literally nobody in the history of college football ever did. Do not tell me. That this is a guy, oh, well, anyone could do it. Nobody ever has. Nobody's done it in Alabama. Nobody's done it at Ohio State. Nobody did it at USC when they were good. Nobody did it at Miami when they were good. Don't tell me anybody could do it. They can't. I understand why Mac Jones is moving up draft boards. I'd have him in that three to four range in terms of quarterbacks, which brings me to question number three. Why are we so convinced Zach Wilson's the second best quarterback in this draft? Like, look, I, I like Zach Wilson. I thought he was really fun to watch. I think he's got a lot of Johnny Manziel in him. I get it. He's fun. They call him the Mormon Manziel. Plays the same way. On the run, crossbody throws, quick, athletic, quick feet, inbounds, out of bounds. But like, why are we so positive that he's the number two pick in the draft? As I said, I host Fox Sports Radio. I'm not saying it to brag. I'm just saying it as a fact. We're on at 11 p.m. Eastern time, which means that we're on for those late Pac-12 games and the late BYU games. Well, guess what? There was no Pac-12 until November this year. So guess who was playing every Saturday night at 10.30 Eastern time? It was BYU. I watched like more BYU football than anyone that's not a BYU fan. And I really liked Zach Wilson. I thought he was awesome to watch, but there was never a moment in time where I said, that is the definitive second best quarterback, second best player in the NFL draft. There was never a time that I said, that is the guy that I would definitively take over Justin Fields. Never said it. And so this idea that we've just like moved past the idea of anyone catching Zach Wilson at number two, it makes no sense to me. Now to be clear, I'm not saying that I think somebody is actually going to jump Zach Wilson in the number two spot and the Jets are gonna shock everybody and take Justin Fields, take Trey Lance, take whoever. I'm just saying I don't really get it. What's also interesting to me, Zach Wilson, as great as he was, as fun as he was, look at who he played this year. It's not his fault but all their big games against all the good teams were canceled because of COVID. Pac-12, league-only schedule. Big 10, league-only schedule. SEC, ACC, Big 12. So because of it, BYU didn't play a single Power 5 team all season long. The best team they played, Coastal Carolina, was also the worst game Zach Wilson played. So we're definitively gonna say that Justin Fields, who played against Clemson, tore him up, played against Alabama, didn't play as well in that game, but we're not gonna talk about that, played against uh, Northwestern, played against whoever, we're gonna you know, we're gonna criticize him for playing better competition, but not Zach Wilson? I don't get it. I'd also say last thought on Zach Wilson. Does feel doesn't it feel a little jetsy to just jet like jetsy as in like a New York Jets move to make to just basically just dismiss and push aside the quarterback from Alabama, the quarterback from Ohio State, the quarterback from Ohio State that since his junior year of high school, we agreed was the second best quarterback prospect in the 2021 draft. We just push him aside for the guy from BYU, the flavor of the month. Now you bring him to New York, played against bad competition. All of a sudden, it's a lot different going up against Army's front seven than the Buffalo Bills. I'm just saying this feels like such a Jets move where they just pass on the obvious thing for the less obvious thing. We'll see what happens, but it's worth noting. Topic number four, question number four. Kind of in the same vein. Like, are we sure you can just take an FCS quarterback that hasn't played in two years? Like, why am I the only one talking about this? Like, why am I the only one questioning it? Even if Trey Lance is the definitive fifth quarterback on the board, and I'm sure everybody knows Trey Lance, quarterback at North Dakota State, the FCS did not play in the fall. They played in the spring. They're still playing as we speak. As a matter of fact, a good friend of mine is their play-by-play guy, Jeff Colhane. I may have him on this podcast to explain to me what, what what's the scoop with Trey Tra- 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 Lance. And to be clear, I've seen the film on Trey Lance. I think he's incredibly gifted. I think he's incredibly fun to watch. But the idea you're going to use a top 10 pick on a quarterback who did not play for an entire year and was already playing at a lower level to begin with, sounds risky to me. I get it if you're, say, the Pittsburgh Steelers drafting in the 20s, you need a quarterback to eventually replace Big Ben. I get it if you're the New Orleans Saints and you're not positive that Jameis Winston or Taysom Hill is your long-term answer. But top 10, Trey Lance, I saw a mock draft that had him going number four to Atlanta, feels a little dicey to me, feels a little Jordan Lovey to me, a little Jordan Love-ish. If you never forget, Jordan Love drafted in the first round by the Packers last year. Uh, yeah, he wasn't even dressing for games by the end of the year. He wasn't even the backup by the end of the year. It concerns me. My final question, question number five, and this one's very interesting to me. Who are going to be risers and who are going to be fallers relative to opting out? Because to me, I think this is a fascinating story that I don't think anybody else has picked up on yet. I think there's going to be a lot of trades. I think there's going to be a lot of craziness once you get past those first five, six, seven picks. Once you get past the quarterbacks. Because I think different teams are going to covet different guys in completely different ways. Think about what you're evaluating this year if you're an NFL team. You have some guys that have not played in a year. Micah Parsons at Penn State opted out. Greg Rousseau at Miami opted out. Jamar Chase, the wide receiver, Bolitnikov winner at LSU opted out. I'm not blaming any of those guys for opting out and doing what they believed was best for their health, their family's health, all that stuff. But what I am saying, it's gonna be really interesting to see, okay, who rises, who falls. Like even Jamar Chase, he was the definitive number one wide receiver on the board going into the year. And then, oh, by the way, Devontae Smith wins the Heisman Trophy. Jalen Waddle at Alabama is awesome. Those guys play. Is he still the first wide receiver off the board? Is he the third wide receiver off the board? But really, what is the moving and shaking that goes on? Because, again, I think you look at somebody like Micah Parsons. I heard somebody say they thought he was the best defensive player in the draft. He hadn't played all this year, though. How can you know that? How can you know? On the flip side, there are other guys only played three, four, five games. There are other guys that played 13, 14 games. So it is just going to be crazy to me and I fully expect just insanity in terms of trades and moving up and moving down and this guy goes 20 spots ahead of where you thought and this guy goes 20 spots behind where you thought because we've never dealt with a draft with so many variables in terms of guys that either didn't play, only played a few number of games because their teams didn't play. You know, the Pac-12 guys played three, four, five games an entire season. Fascinating to me, man. I cannot wait to talk more about this draft because it is fascinating to me and we know that the crazy, silly season is coming because crazy stuff happens, right? Never forget. Baker Mayfield, nobody thought that guy was going number one until literally a day before the draft. Um, Mitch Trubisky, nobody could believe that he would go number two. He goes number two, same with Blake Bortles. So we know crazy stuff is going to happen, but I cannot wait love the NFL draft, love college football, and we will probably talk more and more about it over these next couple shows. All right, last thing. Let's get to shout out of the day. Another staple of this show for the longtime listeners. This is what I'm doing this week because I'm a man of the people. I am rewarding the longtime listeners of the podcast, and if you listen for a long time, you know that shout out of the day was a staple of back when we, I don't know if we, when we first started the show, but maybe two years ago, a year and a half ago, and basically what shout out of the day is, is the idea of bringing up a story that doesn't really have a place anywhere else in the show, and you're not sure how to fit it in, and where does it go, and what and then you just bring it up and just give a shout out of the day, so here's how it works, let's do shout out of the day today, and shout out of the day goes to Pete Rose, the hit king, Pete Rose, why does Pete Rose get the shout out of the day? Not sure if you saw this. Pete Rose is now officially selling baseball picks. Gambling picks. Pete Rose. He signed up for a service called uh, uh, Uptick, I want to say. They call it a tout service. And for $89 a month, you can get Pete Rose's best baseball bet of the day, baby. Talk about steering into the skin. The best part was, by the way, I was reading about this. Pete Rose claims that he is not actually betting on the games himself, but hey, if you're Pete Rose, Hit King, who just turned 80, by the way, this weekend, shout out to Pete Rose, happy birthday. If you're Pete Rose, he says, I'm not, I'm not actually betting on him, but if I have this knowledge, why would I not share it with America for $89 a month? So shout out Pete Rose, shout out the Hit King, shout out $89 a month. Talk about steering into the skid, baby. But I will say in defense of Pete Rose, a couple things, first off, as he said in the press release, and I think he's 100% right, the man does have to make a living, right? Like, you gotta do something. And it's not like his relationship with Major League Baseball is good. It's not like Rob Manfred's gonna call him in a day or a week or a month and be like, yeah, you know what? You know that 30 year ban that you've had? Yeah, screw it, it's over. Come, come to Cooperstown, come hang out. Let's all put you in the Hall of Fame, let's give you a plaque. It's not gonna work. So if you're Pete Rose, you kinda say, screw it. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. You know, sometimes I screwed up. I said some things I shouldn't have said, but I tried. I want to be in the Hall of Fame, but if you won't take me, what am I going to do? Get on my hands and knees and beg? I've been doing it for 30 years. So that's one. But two, let me also say this in defense of Pete Rose. Doesn't it feel a little bit hypocritical of Major League Baseball to right now at this exact moment in time still be holding it against Pete Rose that he bet on baseball? And I get it. You talk to people. Rob Parker, good friend of mine, hosted radio with him, Fox Sports Radio, on Friday. Rob said, I cover Major League Baseball. I was in those clubhouses. First thing on the sign when you walk in, no betting on baseball. So if you're from that camp in that category, like, I get it. I really do. But it does feel a little hypocritical at this moment in time when sports gambling is being legalized like literally every day we get a new press release about a new state that's legalizing sports gambling Arizona last week announced they legalized sports gambling you'll be able to bet on Diamondbacks games in Arizona by next fall you'll be able to bet on you know Arizona Cardinals games by next fall that's on top of the fact that Colorado legalized gambling uh what does Colorado have the Rockies Michigan legalized gambling what does Michigan have uh the Detroit Tigers uh, what about Illinois? Illinois legalized gambling. What does Illinois have? The Cubs, the White Sox. So doesn't it feel a little bit hypocritical from Major League Baseball to say, you know what, we're going to make a ton of money off this, but Pete Rose, you're a bad guy. Can't have you in the Hall of Fame, Pete Rose, bet on baseball, but we're going to make a ton of money off this. Speaking of which, just for fun, I looked it up. Major League Baseball is not innocent in this sports gambling goal. Russian, listen, I get it. I talk sports gambling on this show. It's what we do. We're guys. We're girls. We want to put ten bucks on the game. It's no big deal. I don't care, but just for fun, I googled sp- official gambling partner of Major League Baseball. You know what I? You know what article was the first one that popped up? BetMGM becomes the third sports book to become the official sports gambling partner of Major League Baseball. So to quote LeBron James, Major League Baseball has not one, not two. Not three, but three. Okay, so not three, but three. Legal Sports Gambling Partners. I think the article is from 2022. It might be even more at this point. And so they're going to hold it against Pete Rose that he gambled 40 years ago? When everybody does it now? When you are literally going to be able to go to some stadiums and bet from your phone with an app? With, oh, by the way, some stadiums are going to have sports books in the stadium that you can bet in the stadium? And Pete Rose is the bad guy? Come on. Now listen, I'm not going to do the whole, like Pete Rosé's a band, the Hall of Fame speech, like that's 1991 sports talk radio. We're above that. Not really, but we're sort of above it. But at the same time, MLB, get off your high horse, okay? MLB, get off your high horse. The Major League Baseball Hall of Fame is basically a baseball museum, okay? It's not a, a place where heart surgery is being done. It's not a place where cancer is being cured. It's a little museum for baseball. On top of that, and it's been discussed, this is not my original opinion, but every degenerate known to man is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Babe Ruth was a womanizer. Ty Cobb was a racist. We have alcoholics. We have spousal abusers. We have uh, whatever. Literal criminals. But Pete Rose bet on baseball and he can't be in the Hall of Fame in the middle of the sports gambling gold rush? Makes no sense. Major League Baseball, get off your high horse, put Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame. But with that said, Shout-out of the day goes to Pete Rose, who has an official sports betting tout service. You can pay just a smooth $89 a month to get Pete Rose's best baseball bet. All right, I think that's it for today's Aaron Torres podcast. I got fired up today. A lot of good stuff. Listen, I actually enjoy this time of year. I should also say we will have some quirky different guests. We're still going to have our college basketball guys. We're still going to have our draft picks. We're still going to have our coaches people that I find interesting, but we're also going to have some quirky different kinds of guests here over the next few months, and so it's a fun time, it's a fun time, I genuinely enjoy doing this show at this time for this exact reason, because of the fact that I can go a little bit off, and you know, uh, six weeks ago I probably could not have done the Pete Rose conversation in the middle of, uh, you know, in the middle of, uh, in the middle of uh, March Madness or Conference Championship Week or whatever, but I could talk about Pete Rose, shout out Pete Rose, but it's a fun time of year. So thank you guys for listening. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Podcast, iTunes, the podcast, Addict App, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you are subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres pod on Instagram, Make sure you find the YouTube page, Facebook page, uh, all that good stuff. If you have any questions, we did a mailbag last episode. You guys liked it. Aaron Torres, podcast questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres, podcast questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. I think we will stick with probably two episodes a week, depending on what the news cycle is. Stick with two episodes a week for these next few weeks, but we'll see. Maybe we'll come back with more. Depends. Shout-out to Torrent Craig. Shout-out to Rachel Hates, my voice. I will be back later this week with a new episode of the Aaron Torres Podcast.